week, um, we got back into our series on Matthew. Uh, we said that we wanted to kind of finish up. We're going on two years now, so thought we might uh, get through this last few chapters of Matthew's gospel. So we said each week we're going to take one chapter, and then we're going to find a piece of that chapter to, to kind of share and, and talk about. And so last week I, I kicked it off with something uh, kind of light, wanted to get us ease us back into this, and so we talked about the end times um, and, and the rapture. And so if you were there, it was a very, very simple, easy topic to, to jump into. Um, I, I uh, maybe made the point or the case that the, the idea that we have of the rapture might not be biblical. Um, I see that there are less people here this week than last week, so I may have been wrong. Um, so I'm glad we're, we're all here together still. Um, <laughs> not very funny. Um, so this week I thought, well, let's, let's, let's go maybe um, something a little bit lighter than that. Let, let's, talk about, let's talk about hell. Um, I, I chose my, my coffee mug today. It's coffee from Hell, Hell, Michigan. Everybody been to Hell, Michigan before? Have you ever heard of Hell, Michigan? Some of my Michigan people? Yes, this is actually not even my mug. It's uh, Jeff Norwood's mug. He let me uh, use it today. Uh, I checked today's weather in Hell, Michigan. is uh, a balmy 35 degrees, and so it's exciting if you want to go to Hell. Um, it's actually cold. I'm not doing well in my jokes today. My mic, is my mic off too? It's not working. So. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, I'm going to read you three stories, three separate stories from the Old Testament, um, Luke's Gospel, and then one in Matthew. And then at the end, I'm going to try to piece it together and show some parallels and possibly an overarching theme of who God is and who Jesus is and why and what we're supposed to live and do when it comes to our life now. First in Jonah. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. It says this, starting in verse 4. The mercy God extended towards Nineveh upset Jonah terribly. The more he thought about it, the angrier he became. So he prayed to the eternal. And so Jonah has uh, time to think of how greatly the Syrians are oppressing Israel. And he can't reconcile their deliverance. And Jonah says this, O eternal one. Isn't this what I said would happen when I was still on my own, in my own country? This is exactly the reason I ran away to Tarshish in the first place. I know how you are. I know that you are not like other gods, that you are full of grace and compassion, that it takes a lot to make you angry, and that your loyal love is so great that you are always ready to relent from inflicting misery. Eternal one, since you didn't kill them, please take my life away from me. For my death now is so much better than my life tomorrow. God's response to Jonah was, do you have any good reason to be angry? And Jonah headed east out of the city instead of west towards his home to look for a place high above the city to sit down. He found a suitable spot and built a shelter from the hot sun. He sat there waiting to see what might happen to the city. Then the eternal God chose a gourd plant to grow up and to shade Jonah from the discomfort of the intense heat. The large, thick leaves of the vine made Jonah very, very happy. But at dawn the next day, God chose a worm to chew through the gourd's vine, and that night it shriveled. Then when the sun rose, God chose a scorching east wind to blow. As the sun beat down from the cloudless sky on Jonah's head, he became faint. Again, he asked to die, saying, "'My death now is so much better than my life tomorrow.'" God says, do you have any reason to be angry with the gourd's vine? And Jonah says, yes, I do. I'm angry enough to die. In verse 10, Jonah, don't you understand? You care about this gourd's vine 
And yet you didn't do anything to make it grow. You didn't plant it, water it, or protect it. It appeared one night and then died another. Should I not have pity on that great city of Nineveh where there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? And then turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who had everything, purple clothing of fine quality and high fashion, gourmet meals every day in a large house. And just outside his front gate lay this poor homeless fellow named Lazarus. Lazarus was covered in ugly skin lesions. He was so hungry he wished he could scavenge scraps from the rich man's trash. Dogs would come and lick the sores on his skin. And the poor fellow died and was carried to the arms of the heavenly messenger to the embrace of Abraham. Then the rich fellow died and he was buried and found himself in the place of the dead. In his torment, he looked up and, and off in the distance, he saw Abraham with Lazarus in his embrace. He shouted out, Father Abraham, please show me mercy. Would you send that beggar Lazarus to dip his fingertip in water and cool my tongue? These flames are hot and I'm in agony. But Abraham said, son, you seem to be forgetting something. Your life was full of overflowing with comforts and pleasures. And the life of Lazarus was just as full with suffering and pain. And so now in this time of comfort, so now is his time of comfort. And now is your time of agony. Besides a great canyon separates you and us. Nobody can cross over from our side to yours or from your side to ours. Verse 27, please, Father Abraham, I beg you, the formerly rich man continued, send Lazarus to my house. I have five brothers there, and they are on the same path I was on. If Lazarus warns them, they'll choose another path and won't end up here in torment. But Abraham said, why send Lazarus? They already have the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets to instruct them. Let your brothers hear them. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham, he said, they're already ignoring the law and the prophets, but if someone can come back from the dead, then they'll listen for sure. Then they'll change the way they live their life. And Abraham answered, if they're not listening to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone comes back from the dead. And then last, and it's in our text, in our series of Matthew, it's chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in all his majesty, Accompanied by throngs of heavenly messengers, his throne will be wondrous. All the nations will assemble before him and he will judge them, distinguishing them from one another. As a shepherd isolates the sheep from the goats, he will put some the sheep at his right hand and, and some the goats at his left. And the king will say to those to his right, come here, you beloved, you people from my father, uh, whom my father has blessed. Claim your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of creation. You shall be richly rewarded for when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was alone as a stranger and you welcomed me into your home and into your lives. I was naked and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick and you tended to my needs and I was in prison and you comforted me. And then the righteous will not have, uh, even then the righteous will not have achieved perfect understanding, will not recall these things saying, Master, when did we see you or find you hungry and give you food? When did we find you thirsty and, 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 and slake your thirst? When did we find you a stranger and welcome you in or find you naked and clothe you? When did we find you sick and nurse you to health? And when did we visit you when you were in prison? In verse 40. It says, I tell you this, whenever you saw a brother or sister hungry or cold 
Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And at that, he will turn to those at his left hand and say, get away from me, you despise people from whom my father has cursed. Claim your inheritance, the pits of flaming hell where the devil and his minions suffer. For I was starving and you left me with no food. When I was dry and thirsty, you left me to struggle with nothing to drink. When I was alone as a stranger, you turned away from me. When I was pitiful, pitifully naked, you left me unclothed. When I was sick, you gave me no care. And when I was in prison, you did not comfort me. The unrighteous will reply, Master, when did we see you thirsty and hungry? When did we see you friendless or homeless or excluded? When did we see you without clothes? When did we see you sick or in jail? When did we see you in distress and fail to respond? Verse 45 says, I tell you this. Whenever you saw a brother hungry or cold, when you saw a sister weak and without friends, when you saw the least of these and ignored their suffering, so you ignored me. So these, the goats, will go off to everlasting punishment, but the beloved, the sheep, will go into everlasting life. My bet that the number one takeaway from that passage for most of evangelicalism, especially for my childhood growing up, the number one image from that passage was somebody's going to hell, right? That the threat of hell, the eternal punishment, the, the death. And unfortunately, this threat of eternal punishment has been the driving force behind much of Christianity. And I believe that it's hijacked the true message of Jesus and the Gospels and has left us with a, with a lot of unanswered questions. My kids, they love to ask questions. Canon, my, my, my son, he's the thinker, right? He's my thinker in the family. Maisie, she's the doer. But Canon is thought deep, right? And he always seems to ask these questions that, that I don't know the answers to, right? And so instead of answers, I tell my kids that I want to give you responses, right? I, because I, I might not have the answer, so let me just respond. And that got me thinking some of the questions that our culture asks and that some, some of us just, we seem to never agree upon or, or know the answer to. For instance, some that came to mind were like, like who gets the armrest in a movie theater or on the airplane, right? The person to the left or the person to the right? We don't know, right? Who, what about the, the toilet paper? Is it over or under? Which way does it go? Or ketchup, refrigerated or not? Do we know? I don't like cold ketchup. When, when a new line at the grocery store opens, who goes first, right? Is it the person that's been waiting or the first person that walks by when they say it's open? That happened to me the other day. I was very upset with that lady. <laughs> Do married people really live longer than single people? Or does it just feel much longer? <laughs> we don't know these answers. What about questions of faith and politics, right? Like what side of the issue do you stand what side of the issue would, would Jesus stand on? Would, would Jesus even take a side on that issue? Why does he always seem to take your side of the issue, right? What about, uh, you know, we're, we're in a part of Matthew's story where questions that, that I just don't have answers to. Or my response might not be your response to the question. Or, or my response might not be the response you like. This week I watched a movie that I, would, that I would highly recommend to you for anyone to see. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, it's free right now. Or you can rent it on Vimeo or YouTube. But it's called Hell and Mr. Fudge. And I want you to watch a clip from this movie. Brothers and sisters, 
I'm sure we'll all agree that we must remain grounded to the principles that have made us the true church. Edward, you're pacing. But we will hold fast to the truth. This could be another train wreck, just like last time. Just, just explain it to them like you did to me. Let me see this task straight. No matter our desire to see it differently, the scriptural evidence is abundantly clear. You know, um, let's get your jacket. Listen to him. He's going to roast me out there like Westside. Remember Westside, Jimmy? Oh, yeah. I remember. Now, l- l- let me see you. I'd like to thank our speaker, Dr. Simpson. Oh, you, you, your shoe's untied. And, um, here, let's put, put it right here. Right up here. Okay. Our next speaker, Edward Fudge, takes a different position. He's smart, articulate. Thanks for letting me shoot this, Edward. Kind of takes you back, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, Jimmy. <laughs> Indeed, it does. Edward. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. What brings you out here in this, this part of the neighborhood? Brother, I need some advice. <clears throat> Now, you know that, that work I've been doing on hell, it's, it's finished. Yeah? Now, how'd it turn out? You want to rile up some saints? <laughs> it will certainly do that. And we've, we've gotten it all wrong. We have from the start. There is no unending torment in hell, and I can prove it. Yeah. Well, what's the problem? Well... I'm standing against 2,000 years of Christian history here. And more importantly, 35 years of what my daddy passed on to me. These roots run deep. I'm going to make matters worse. There's a fellow from the radio who wants me, wants me to do an interview with him and set the record straight. Mm. You going to do it? I don't know. How can I tell people that everything that they have believed is a lie? But if it's true, how can you not? Is that it? That is it. Well, I tell you, Edward, I've been at this preaching business a while, and I figured like this. Folks are partial to the truth that they've already got. If you come marching up with some brand new 200-watt light, folks are going to say, whoa, wait a minute, too much light. I prefer that itty-bitty light at the back of the refrigerator. It's always on when I need it. And if I don't need it, I don't even think about it. What's he saying? He's saying I shouldn't? I'm saying be careful. Be careful. If you think you've got your tail feathers singed over that west side, well, you just wait until all of evangelical Christendom shows up at your doorstep ready for some, some serious grilling. You'll just wish it was those dear saints from Westside. If you get a chance, watch the movie based on a, a true story. Um, he also has a couple books out. His name is Edward Fudge. He actually just passed away in November, and so, but his. Uh, um, he, he is one of the leading theologians when it comes to uh, some stances on 
on what hell is. And, and like that video kind of ends, I too humbly want to, to move forward through this because I know that your beliefs and your faith are important to you. And I also know that we're not all at the same place in our journeys um, or we all of our beliefs line up together. Something neat about the Grove Church is the diversity we have here. Um, and so uh, just please listen and, and, and then we'll go from there. And, and in the story of God told by a tax collector, we see that the religious culture at that time was asking questions about their faith. They were asking questions that we still ask today, struggle with the answers, and we can't seem to agree upon. But something I think that we can all agree on, that from the beginning of Matthew's story, Jesus has been inviting us into a new life, a new way of being. We've got to the end of Matthew's story and nothing's changed except some of the language and imagery that Jesus decides to use. And this is where things get a little confusing, a little messy, a little obscure. And I was actually hoping that it would be Matt's turn to teach on Matthew because he's the new guy and everyone loves the new guy, it seems, and you don't get mad at him. Um, but it's not. It's my turn, so I'm going to try because the answers to the questions that come up here at the end of Matthew are, are not simple. They're not black and white. They're not clear. And, and some answers we just don't have. And maybe the reason some of us are uncomfortable with answers or without answers is because that creates tension. You like the itty-bitty light in the back of the refrigerator, right? You don't want that new 200-watt light bulb. Because if we were honest, some of us, church is a place for us to hang out. Church is a hobby. It's a social club. It's a place we come to get fed. A place where we find a bunch of people just like me. A place to judge others, maybe. A place to fulfill my church attendance. But now you're messing with it. You're challenging things that we've believed all of our lives. I just want to come to church and be seen. Church should be a place where we can invite others to explore what a relationship with God looks like. To ask questions, to doubt, to wonder, to, to walk, to seek, to read, and to be okay without answers. Because remember, the invitation to follow Jesus was for everybody. And Jesus was unbelievably comfortable being around people who didn't have answers, didn't have the same values, didn't have the same morals, didn't have the same beliefs. They didn't look, smell, act, talk like a Christian. And Jesus was completely comfortable with that tension. In fact, he, he would even create it. And so maybe you have doubts and questions or, uh, you know, huge questions about God and about faith and a life. And you truly believe that if people here knew that about you, that they wouldn't be comfortable being around you. Or they might already know that about you and they're probably already comfortable, uncomfortable that you believe, that you don't believe the way they believe. And if, you, and if you think we're not comfortable with you being here, I want you to know this. That's our problem. Like not, not God's problem. He's okay with it. Jesus would not be put off by your sin or your doubts or your questions. Jesus would be unbelievably comfortable being around you. And the invitation was to follow him. That was for you. That he was inviting you into a relationship with him in a new way of living. See, Jesus has a totally opposite strategy for forming community than we do. Like we have a checklist, right? Like we have rules and criteria that need to be followed and met first. Like things like the same values, the same economic bracket, the same politics, the same color, the same beliefs, uh, you know, the same whatever it is. We don't want any tension in church. But here's the thing. 
If you have ever been in a community like that, even with a lot of love, there's going to be tension. Whether it's your family or your coworkers or your circle of friends, someone will do or say something that you don't agree, agree with, whether politics or ideology, faith, and there will be tension. And we have all people, uh, we all have people that we're close to in those circles that believe, act, or vote differently, but we don't break relationship with them. Jesus purposely did this. And so I want to do that as a community. And communities, it's not always full of tension, but if we're following Jesus's strategy for community, there's going to be tension at times. I would be worried if there wasn't. In fact, so much that my guess is, and this is the hard and honest reality of church life. Some of you won't stick around here very long. Tension will make you uncomfortable and you're like, I'm out. I can't handle it, and that's okay. Last week, we talked about peace, and we said that peace is not the absence of conflict. That war is. War is the inability to have conflict. Conflict says, hey, yeah, we disagree, so we're going to talk, and we're going to listen to one another, and we're going to choose to disagree for now, and I love you, and and you matter to me, and so I'm going to come back next week, and we can talk some more. Or, what are you doing Tuesday night? Let's go out and have a drink, and let's, let's talk a little bit more about it. War is, oh, you don't agree with me? We draw lines. The defense shield is activated. We open fire. We say, I hate you and I'm leaving. I'm taking my ball and going home. And now we're looking for a church that fits us better. So what's left for us when people would rather just break off relationships then? Awkward encounters at Ingalls, right? Yeah, you know, right? At football games or at the coffee house. I honestly think this is why some churches build coffee shops inside their church because you'll never run into someone that's left the church there, right? I've said this since I got here, that we're not the best church in town and we're not the only church in town. I, I would guess that there are, there's a good church for everyone out there. And the Grove's not for everyone. But what I want to have happen here is a, create a community where sometimes there's tension, And if you're looking for a community where everyone thinks alike, votes the same, dresses the same, believes the same, acts the same, or in other words, everyone is just like you, this will probably not be the place for you long term. Because we must create an environment where people can belong before they believe, where they can have doubts and questions and maybe not see everything as uh, the same as you do. But it's in the essentials, there's unity, right? In the non-essentials, there's liberty, And in all things, love. I think that was Jesus' design for community. That this needs to be a place where people can think differently, believe differently, act differently, where we understand that the invitation is to follow Jesus, and that's for everyone. And this is why church is messy. I want it to be messy. But we must follow Jesus' example for community. I think there's three things real quick that Jesus did when it came to creating community and how our hope here at the Grove is to do the same. First is that Jesus declared that everyone was welcome. That was the first thing Jesus did. Invited everybody and anybody to follow him. We need to be a church that welcomes everybody and invites them in. And so for us, everyone welcomes at our church and to our community. There will be tension and you will be uncomfortable at times. And you're not going to know what to even do with it at times. Just know and trust that we are trying to create a community where people can explore 
what a relationship with Jesus looks like and journey together. Second, we're also going to admit our mess. You've heard us talk about this. To be honest about all of our brokenness, that we're not there yet. We don't have all the answers. I'm not there yet. And last is that we communicate a message of hope that anything is possible with Jesus. Or let's go home. This is why we have church. This is why I love the church, that we're able to offer hope. And there was a transformation happening for Matthew where, where walls were breaking down for him and he was given a second chance at life. And it's all, we've all been given that chance with an invitation to belong into community. And so we're creating an atmosphere of hope for the broken. Where there is death, we want to give life. And here's a quote I've shared before by a pastor named Robert Rutherford. He says, my two worst addictions I ever had, cocaine and religion. One stole my heart, blurred my mind, took my family, depleted my funds, destroyed my uh, dreams, made me paranoid, taught me to hide and ruin my life. And the other was a white pottery substance. Religion Religion done wrong can kill and destroy families. It can destroy friendships and steal our joy. And I don't know what your church experience has been like, if it's been marked by law and rules and legalism or by truth and grace and freedom. If it's felt like a prison or an open space to explore. Our job is to love God and to love others. And that love should compel us to see people, not just for who they are today, but for who they can become tomorrow. Deep down in all of us, we want to be fully known and fully loved. But we're afraid if we're one, then we we won't be the other. Like if we're fully known, then people won't love us. Or if they love us, it's because that we're not fully known. But in him, we're both. So our job as a church is to give people hope. The church's job is to remind people of that and to give hope. On the flip side, nothing has worked more coercively in the church than the message of hell and eternal torture, right? How many of you have ever visited an altar or two just to escape the future of hell? Some of you are lying right now. You're in church. Go ahead and raise your hands, right? There were messages, two messages for me as a teenager. Come to Jesus to escape hell, you know, turn or burn, or come to Jesus because he loves you. And the issue for us as a church is that there are many competing narratives, competing stories when it comes to how you and I imagine what hell is like, or if it even exists. Church history is full of competing views and thoughts and beliefs, and many of us get caught up in that. I told you a little bit about my church story last week where, you know, my mom freaked out when someone drew a blue M on my head and thought I had the mark of the beast, right? You know, and, and then I had I subjected to the drama Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames at our church. And then the movie that I showed a clip from last week called Future Tense, it predated the Left Behind series, but same kind of thing. It, it wrecked me. The idea of hell was something that I struggled with. The idea that people who, were, who maybe made a bad decision or grew up without knowing God, would end up in eternal conscious torture. That didn't make sense to me. So where do we get our ideas of hell? Well, Greek mythology plays a big role. It's where we get the idea of Hades and, you know, and, and Loki, right? It's a Greek image of hell that was, that was grafted into the Christian faith. And so it's interesting where we get our ideas of what hell is like. But hear this. Regardless of what you think hell is, whether it's a place, 
a location, a state of being, no matter how you imagine it, Jesus is against it. Jesus stands against hell and offers a new alternative, a new way to live and to be in the world. Nowhere in the Gospels does it say that Jesus is sending anyone to hell. In fact, Jesus doesn't talk very much about hell at all. He references it 11 times. What he does talk about quite a bit is the kingdom of God. What he does is he warns us about living in such a way that we remove ourselves from God, that we isolate ourselves from God and and find ourselves in our own living hell. And the good news, the gospel message is that our God offers hope and life. And we may have all these conflicting views of hell. And if I were to stop now and ask each one of us to describe hell, I think we would be all over the spectrum. But if there's one thing that we can come together on, I think it's this. Jesus is not for it. I believe that we can all unite on that. That you and I are invited to embrace this life and to embody that hope. So that no matter where someone is, no matter how much darkness there is, that they can see that Jesus is the liberator. That the gospel is the good news. It's the message of of victory. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Dante's Divine Comedy. Perhaps you've heard of Dante's Inferno. These stages of, and levels of hell from Abraham's bosom to Hades' fire. See, I don't think Jesus had that vision of our eternity. Instead, it was a kingdom of grace and mercy and peace and hope and love, joy, recreation, redemption, reconciliation. And when Jesus comes in flesh, he talks about the kingdom of God. And when there is a reference to hell, it was this separation and isolation from a living God. And Jesus warns us of that. Eleven times in the gospel, Jesus references Gehenna. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke only. John's gospel doesn't mention it at all. But it was a reference to an actual location at the time. A place that was outside the city of Jerusalem. It was a, a garbage dump where someone that would commit heresy or someone that was being removed from the community, they were taken outside the city wall, out of community and into isolation. That the great kings of Israel who fell and worshiped foreign gods would sacrifice children to these gods of fire there. And Jesus uses this imagery to show how horrible it would be to step away from the living God while inviting us to participate in life. He was saying that the kingdom of God is the opposite of that. In the story of Jonah, you have a prophet called by God to go and preach to Nineveh. But Jonah couldn't stand those people. And so he removed himself from God, right? From those that he was in relationship with. And even those that that he hated, he ran the other way. It was a story of a man choosing isolation and separation over God. He enters into the belly of a whale, Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead. Jonah cries out from the grave. Jonah doesn't want to see the people of Nineveh repent. But he, doesn't, he also doesn't want to die, right? And when the people of Nineveh turn to God, and God shows mercy on them, what does he do? He goes on top of a hill and he pouts, right? So God, in his grace, even for Jonah now, He sends shade, right, in the form of a a vine. Then God sends a worm that eats the vine. And he takes Jonah's shade away. And now Jonah hates life and he wants to die. 
And so in verse, verse 10 again, let me read that to you. Jonah, you don't understand. You care more about this gourd's vine, and yet you didn't do anything to make it grow. You didn't plant it, water it, or protect it. It appeared overnight and then died another. Should I not have pity on that great city of Nineveh, where there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Jonah would rather condemn people for their sin than welcome them into life with God. Do you know any churches like that, right? They'd rather tell people that they're going to hell than invite them into life. See, God's intent is to save, not destroy. That God's big love and big grace gets the last word. In Brian McLaren's book, We Make the Road by Walking, he has a chapter dealing with Jesus in hell. And this is what he says. So that the real purpose of Jesus' fire and brimstone language that we're hearing in, hearing in Matthew, his purpose was not to predict the destruction of the universe or to make absolute for all eternity the insider-outsider categories of us and them. Its purpose was to wake up complacent people, to warn them of the danger of their current path and to challenge them to change. Using the strongest language and imagery available, as in the ancient story of Jonah, God's intent was not to destroy but to save. Neither the great big fish nor a great big fire gets the last word, but rather God's great big love and grace. Sadly, many religious people still use the imagery of hell more in the conventional way Jesus sought to reverse. Like Jonah, they seem disappointed that God's grace might get the final word. If more of us were to re-examine this fascinating dimension of Jesus' teaching and come to a deeper understanding of it, we would see what a courageous, subversive, and fascinating leader he was, pointing us to a radical, different way of seeing God, life, and being alive. The story in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus. Every day the rich man ignored Lazarus, right? Lazarus didn't exist to him. The man was in isolation. He was in separation. Self-centeredness, this rich man. Taking steps towards his own personal hell on earth. The separation from others leads us to a separation from God. And when you're self-absorbed, you're no longer aware of God's presence in your life because you believe that you're God. And so what happens in this story? They both die, right? Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man goes to Haiti. Again, imagery taken from the culture of that day. The rich man begs that someone sends word to his five brothers to warn them. And Jesus says, well, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe a man coming back from, from the dead. And then finally, in the last story we told in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. You guys ever wonder which one you are? Right? Think about that, right? Like, I've never met a Calvinist who didn't think they were the elect. I never met an evangelical who didn't think they were a sheep, Right? I don't know if you noticed, side note, that not one of those sins that we spend all of our time worrying about and arguing about these days, they don't get mentioned here at all. The only thing mentioned in the story is how we treat the others in our culture. And like, here's the biggest piece of the story. Neither the sheep or the goats, neither side, the righteous or the unrighteous, neither group of people knew what they were doing, right? When did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? The only difference between the two groups of people was what they did or did not do. 
Richard Rohr calls this the salvation by accident. Like neither side knew what they were doing. They were just doing it. It was a pure act of love that was pleasing to God. It was people who might not even know God treating others better than those who claim to know him. When did we see you naked, hungry, thirsty? Jesus said, what you do to them, you do to me. This great turnaround where we find Christ in the ones that we're trying to give Christ to. What you do to them, you do to me. Jesus says there's this moral equivalency that Jesus and the other are the same. And what you do to one, you do to the other. And after 2,000 years, we still don't believe it. On Sunday mornings we do, right? But look how we treat others in our community. Look how we allow ourselves to be divided. Like we're taught to hate groups of people because of, of skin color, because of gender, because of race or religion or the country they come from. When you are consumed with self, you're not thinking about the other. And that takes you further from God, which is hell. Not just a future experience, but something you can experience now. And it can affect those around you. And Jesus is not condemning anyone in those places, but instead inviting us to life. That you and I were created to be in community. And that's the core of our identity. Relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with creation. The closer we are to those, the more we live and participate in heaven on earth. And the opposite is true. The further we pull away and isolate ourselves, the closer we are to hell. And tragically, it seems that even though Jesus has given us a way to avoid eternal punishment and how to live in the now, instead of doing that, we're stunned and we're afraid of God's wrath. And we spend countless hours worrying about how is this going to end? Where am I going to end up? Who's in? Who's out? And we no longer care for those around us. We become so self-absorbed, self-centered, that we quit inviting people into a new way of living. And even more tragic, we quit living a new life of ourselves. That we, we, we got the answer but we refuse to give it or refuse to live it. Confessions of a, of a pastor. I was in the middle of writing this uh, and reading up on this. And it was Thursday. The church doorbell rang. You know, and Thursday's the day that I'm alone in the office usually. It's quiet, just me and my thoughts. My doorbell rang. Who put that doorbell in there? I did. But now it rang. And, and I, I, didn't, I, I didn't want to get it. I got to be honest. I, I didn't want to get it. So I slowly walked down the hallway, taking my time, looked around the corner, and no one was at the door. And so I kind of walked to the door, and there was an older gentleman that was back to me, walking back to his car. I didn't know who he was. I didn't recognize him. I thought to myself, he probably just wanted money. Um, and so I turned and headed back to my office, and I didn't get but three steps. And the irony of the message that I was writing and reading the story was in front of me. And I stopped the guy. I was able to get to the door and open it. And he saw me and I stopped him. And he, he needed kerosene for a heater. He was out. He was cold. I um, offered to work here. I didn't have anything for him to do, but I, I, I didn't want him to go home cold. And so I, I followed him to the gas station. And, and I was able to help put kerosene in his, in, his, in his gas can. 
But I don't think I could have got up here today had I not done that. And I don't tell you it to, for me, but, I, but I, it's, not, it's not why I did it. I wasn't afraid that, you know, you know I'm going to get in trouble or something like that. I truly like to help people, but not all the time. Uh, and I don't think it was an accident that the doorbell rang when it did. Who we are when no one is looking. See, no one would have known any different if I hadn't told you that story. Not even the guy. He wouldn't even known that I was there. He would have just driven away. But here's the point. It's the point of Matthew 25. And the point of the gospel. That when Jesus uses these symbols of Hades and, and hell and Sheol and Gehenna, I don't think he is referring to an eternal torture. I think Jesus is warning us that saying your actions have eternal consequences. Like it matters what you do. And the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did or did not do. Jesus is saying that it matters. That are you going to live a life of love or a life of selfishness? And he says, don't take the risk. And God's character is revealed in this story. Not the threat, but the fact that Jesus cares about the least of these. That his love for the others is what defined him. That we're to love the ones that can't pay you back. Love the kind of people that only pure love for others can allow or, or motivate you. That is the law of freedom. Being able to love people for no other reason but to love them. Not because of a threat. But when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or in prison? They didn't know it was Jesus. The kingdom of God is when we love others without conditions. When we love others not for a reward, not for eternal insurance, but we love others because it's the truth. That you and I were made in love, made to love, to live in love. That is our true identity. And we spend so much time worrying about stuff that Jesus doesn't focus any time on. In this story of Matthew, it's the only time in the entire Bible that something is listed four times in a row. Like Jesus is trying to, to convey a message here. He's trying to tell us something. The point is about loving others. That's the meaning of life. Invitation into life, not a threat of eternal punishment. You can't let the story like that destroy your image of God because God is love. A life lived in love has eternal consequences. To refuse to not love others, it would seem that that leads to death. Hell on earth, hell later, whatever hell is for you. And it's amazing how clear this message seems to be. Repeats it four times, but how little impact it has on us. And how little we do taking care of the poor, or visiting the prisoners, or clothing the naked. See, how you and I live matters. And there are two ways to eliminate our enemies. We can kill them, or we can love them, which includes forgiving them, inviting them in, the immigrant the outsider, the, the poor, the broken. Because there are a lot of goats, right? A lot of people who don't care, don't love, don't serve. They step over Lazarus to get wherever it is that they're going, right? And some people will claim to love God and turn around and hate people for nothing more than the color of their skin. That reveals true character. But Jesus is the giver of life and peace and hope. He demonstrates it by giving us himself, not removing himself from us. 
And there are many competing narratives of the story of heaven and hell. But I'm not interested in a message that is wrapped up fully in just saving people from hell. In some places, that's the message. Some churches, that's the message. It has to be because their image of God is of a God who wants to send people there. So they better save them. I remember when I was subbing at the middle school once, ran into another local preacher and his voice was gone, completely gone. And I said, hey, what's wrong? Are you sick? He said, no, it's Monday. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, yesterday was preach day, right? And I said, like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, well, you got to yell. You got to fire and brimstone. That's how it is, right? Every Monday, your, your voice should be gone. I'm like, I- I'm not into that. I don't, I don't know. You're some, some churches, that's their message. They want to preach and yell and condemn. You know, their church sign even says, you know, ours, you pull in. What does it say below our sign? Love. I mean, it, it, I think it's time as a church that we tell the truth, that we share the love of God, that whatever you believe about hell and who goes there, or if anyone goes there, or if it exists now, or if it exists in the future, the truth is that God doesn't choose to send anyone there. Instead, he offers a new life. And that is our hope. And how we live and treat others matter. From Jonah to Matthew's gospel to us now, his message has always been the same. And he won't relent from that message. I'm going to invite the band to join me on stage. We're going to go into a time of worship. I know this is a thick, deep, tough topic. I said last week, fundamentalism sometimes is defined or described by gripping so tightly to your beliefs that when you were to let go, you'd see imprints of fingernails in your hands. And we, we, we've said, hey, we, we want to be a place that is a little more open-handed than that. To let go of some things, to listen, to hear, to let God move you. Um, and to not just believe what I say, but for yourself to seek, to know, to read, um, to ask questions and to discover truth. Um, but it starts with a heart open to hearing from God. Join me in prayer. God, speak to us. God, where are things in our lives that we've held on so tightly that we, we miss the point of loving others? That we're so busy trying to get somewhere that we've stepped over the other. That we're, we're so caught up in trying to be right that we'd rather see people be punished and condemned and tormented than to share a story and tell them the truth that they might be able to repent and know you and that your grace may be able to find them. That we're so self-absorbed that we forget the message is to love others. God, continue to chase us down, to challenge us, to seek us. Maybe we've been open to be led by you. In your name we pray. Amen. As your pastor, I do my best to, to humbly approach these topics. I know they're tough. I know your faith and your beliefs are, are, are important to you. One thing that I've learned, though, over my journey of, of walking with, with, with God is that um, often I have to uh, humble myself and lay myself down, my wants, my thoughts, my 
my, uh, my expectations down and to, and to listen to hear from God. And, and as a community, I ask that of all of us, that we're willing to, 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 to humble ourselves, to, to lay ourselves down and to let God lead us, to speak to us, to understand uh, what it's about, why he came, um, that how important our lives matter, the, the, what we do and what we don't do actually matters, how we love God, how we love others. So we're going to close with this last song. It's called Lay Me Down. And may that be kind of our, our going out, our anthem for today and for moving forward is that when we approach life and, and community and faith and relationships, it's always about the other. It always has been. 